Welcome to Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast. Learn firsthand from business owners who built successful ABA businesses. Utilize proven techniques and strategies to help your practice thrive. This is Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast with Jonathan Mueller. Ryan Gilliam is the VP of Revenue Cycle Management at Element RCM. And prior to that, he and his wife owned an ABA business for eight years in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, before successfully selling to a local ABA company. Ryan's favorite movie is Tombstone. His favorite weekend activity, chess. And his guilty pleasure is Krispy Kreme donuts. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I appreciate that warm intro there. (laughs) Well, before we get to your experience owning an ABA company, Ryan, I know sports was a huge part of your life growing up. Tell me about sports and what they meant to you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm from Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, most folks only know about Tallahassee for like, you know, politics being the state capital and FSU football, right? Florida State football, Bobby Bowden. So I grew up, you know, in that town where pretty much if you were breathing and you were a boy, you played football. Um, so that was just, that was life. And I was blessed to go to a pretty cool high school um, that was really successful in football, won some state championships, and six of my uh, childhood friends, classmates, teammates, all went on to play in the NFL um, within like a three-year span period. And I was one of the guys who was supposed to do that and did not do it. Like, it was not not in the cards for me. So that, that kind of impacted me. So like in sports, taught me not just like friendship, competitiveness, and discipline, but it also taught me how to fail. Right. So it's something that's really helped me uh, in business by failing early and then like still having to recover and come back and and, and still uh, show up and be my best self every day. I want to come back to that idea about failure in a moment, but you've got this crazy story about meeting Phil Knight. And for our listeners, (laughs) Phil Knight is uh, one of the founders of Nike. (sighs) Can you share that, man? Yeah. So uh, uh, in high school, I was a pretty cool a pretty big recruit and at the time uh, I was committed to Florida State and Oregon was trying to take a flyer on me and say hey will you come out here and take a visit and so I was like okay I'll, I'll take a visit to Oregon which at the time was just like unheard of for a guy from Florida to go to Oregon on a, a recruiting visit and um, they sent a town car to my house I'm 17 so like think of this I've never been in a town car before it's got the phone in it the whole deal right and then I go to this private airport in Tallahassee I didn't know existed and there's waiting this fancy jet and when I get on you know I'm greeted by a nice stewardess and some some folks uh that say hey this is this is Phil Knight's private jet like dead serious and I'm like what like the dude that owns Nike and um so yeah, I fly on his private jet. I have like filet mignon and hot dogs and french fries. Don't ask me why that was a combination I asked for. <laughs> but uh, they wanted to give me a good steak and I had never had filet mignon before. So that was that was my experience. It was a long flight, but it was a short flight, direct flight to Eugene, Oregon. And I get off the plane and I get an opportunity to not just meet the, the, the Oregon football team staff and so forth and so on, but I got to have some, some cool conversations with Phil Knight. And uh, throughout my experience at Oregon while I, while I played football there, uh, I got to go to his ranch a couple times and have some pretty cool conversations with him. But yeah, Phil Knight flew me on his private jet to come on my trip. And as a result, I committed to go to Oregon because it's Phil Knight's jet, right? <laughs> What's going through your head as a 17-year-old who's like on this private jet eating filet mignon? What emotions are you experiencing? 
you know, honestly, like I didn't know like this is my that was my only my second recruiting trip. The only other recruiting trip at that time I had done was like my hometown, Florida State. So like I didn't know at the time like that was like a big deal. Like I knew it was a big deal, but I didn't know it was a big deal compared to like flying commercial and stuff because I hadn't had an opportunity to do all that. So I thought like, is this how it's supposed to be every time? Like, no, <laughs> everybody doesn't send town cars and private jets to you. But that's like at 17, that was my main impression was just like, this is pretty nice. And then to be honest with you, I never seen kind of money like that before, you know, like luxury wealth, not like rich, but like wealth. Um, just, I never experienced anything like that. So for me, it was like, it's like something like, Hey, I could, I could get used to this. So, <laughs> so that was, that was the, the main takeaways I had at 17. Tell me more about your time at the University of Oregon. And did that end up the way uh, you had hoped it would end? No, I mean, it was it was a cool time, right? You know, so, you know, you're, you're freshman, sophomore in college, and you're figuring it out. I, I think coming from Florida, Eugene, it was a oh, culture shock, right? So um, from, if you guys don't know, like, like Eugene is like a very diverse place. Um, it's not, you know, think of it as little Seattle is, is, is a, a way of thinking of it, right? So got to meet people and interact with people that I just never, never, never did before. Um, so that part was really fun. Um, one thing I didn't know, like, like, is that it rains for every day for four months out of the year. Like I, I heard of stuff like that, but I didn't know like the Pacific Northwest was like the weather was really that. So that kind of got to me. Um, and then obviously the cold, like compared to that. But so I, I was only there for two and a half years um, before I transferred. But but my time there was great, great friends, great memories, uh, some, some people that I'll never forget. Right. Uh, just the folks you, you know, not just play with, but folks you, you know, when you go to college, like you meet some some lifelong friends. So great experiences. But I was cold and I wanted to go home. <laughs> Tell me, and, and so you moved back to Florida, right? And you um, played football a little more, but you also yeah. ran track. Is that, is that true? Yeah, I ran, I ran track at Oregon as well. I ran track throughout all college. I was one of those du rare dual sport athletes. Uh, you know, I had a football scholarship as well as a track scholarship. I could be on either one. So, yeah, it, it was just a part of what I did. I was, um, I've never only done one thing at a time. So like if a student athlete normally just plays their sport and goes to school, I played my both my sports. I went to school full time, obviously. And I was one of the ones who had to have internships and externships in the off season. So I was I was definitely busy in college. But uh, but yeah, at USF, I, I, I was able to uh, do some cool things on the field and on the track, but, you know, uh, become an academic All-American as well. So I'm, I'm really proud about excelling in the classroom as well as on the field. You know, Ryan, I like to say that uh, I like to think of supervisors and especially in our ABA field um, as coaches, because I think coaching behaviors are mm. some of the most powerful and impactful behaviors a supervisor could demonstrate. Tell me about a couple of your coaches and pinpoint what was oh. it that made them a great coach and maybe contrast to someone who was not a great coach. All right. So first of all, let me just tell you guys that I have been blessed to be like shepherded by so many different coaches who had different styles throughout um, my collegiate career and even high school. Um, uh, obviously through track and, and football, you have different demeanors, right? Different approaches. But one of the first uh, coaches that really made an impact on me um, was Jim Levitt, head football coach at University of South Florida. Uh, he has a PhD in psychology and he will never tell you he does. And most people don't think of coaches, right? In that, that standpoint of like, you know, shrinks. <laughs> um, but uh, as a uh, but as a 
But as a clinician, he understood how to push your buttons. And so with me, he never talked to me about football. He never kind of communicated with me and pushed me on the field. He pushed me academically. Like he 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 always would like like try to get me over and over again to be like great in the classroom. And like if we were in the hallway, if we were in meeting rooms, he was always like, hey, you know, why don't you have straight A's this semester? You know, like that was his conversation. And he was like, you know, if you can't, you know, if you can't excel in the classroom, you'll never do good on the field for me. And like for me, because I cared so much at the time about football and even though I was doing good at school, I wasn't doing my best. He felt like the only way I would ever do my best in football is if I, I, I applied that to other areas of my life that I wasn't, you know, and I didn't get it, you know, at 20 and 21 years old. Right. But as a grown man, I get it now. He was he knew what he was doing. There was some methods to the madness there. And it's, it's got me to the point now where I don't I don't just accept mediocrity in other areas of my life. Like I'm like I you, we, we tend to only want to work at what we're good at. And he was showing me, hey, you got to work in the areas you're not good at. And I really appreciated that. And I won't say a bad coach, but something that I found that uh, working with coaches that wasn't something that I, I gleaned from or probably added to my repertoire, but more said, hey, this isn't for me, is like talking to people as if like they're not human. And, and, and in sports, you get that. We, we think of that as from a military standpoint. We think if we down somebody enough, they'll, they'll, they'll respond. Some people do that way, but I think most people don't. Um, and so that's something that I, I saw throughout my career that probably wasn't the wasn't something that I agree with or because I feel like you, you have to build people up and not just knock them down all the time and I really appreciate those coaches that were about building and not you know hurting right I got to rewind so Jim Levitt your football coach mm -hmm. is not talking about football he's primarily talking to you about academics tell me how did he build that relationship with you and get to know you to know that that was what he needed to coach you on so he, he was playing a mind trick on me. So I transferred from the University of Oregon to South Florida. And when I did, when I first got there, I didn't have a place to stay. So I stayed with him. Literally, I was on his couch, um, you know, uh, for maybe, I don't know, three weeks or something. So I got, they got me an apartment and everything. And, uh, you know, his deal to me was, he says, you, you know, you can do anything you want to do. You're a smart guy, but, but you'll, you'll never be great. Like Ryan, you know, there's a difference between people who are average and who people excel. You'll never be great until you really, really uh, excel in the classroom. And I, and it made no sense to me. Cause like every other coach I've ever talked to was always like get my technique or my form or like really focusing me on like getting in the weight room or getting faster or something. And he was like, yeah, that stuff is fine. Like who cares? Like, but are you going to be a good father? Are you going to be, you know, a good provider? Like, are you going to be a good husband? I'm like, dude, what are you doing? I don't get this. Like, this makes no sense to me. But he, but what, but what the, the characteristics that take somebody to be a good football player is somebody that understands how to follow through and somebody that understands how to be disciplined and show up every day and just like do the work and get better. And those are the characteristics you need in the classroom. Those are the characteristics that excel with an employer. And so that's, that's what I took away from it like as a as an adult like growing but at the time it was really frustrating because I, I, I want him to connect with me through football but he was like that's irrelevant to me like like i know you know how to do that but let's let's focus on the areas that you're not and that you need to grow and build at and so that's it's really impactful now and i really appreciate what he did because now i my natural disposition is to look at the areas i'm not as strong in and always try to learn because that's 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 where he kind of would take me to instead of like focusing and saying, hey, I'm great at this and not focusing in those other areas. So I, 
It was a reverse mind trick, but it, it kind of worked. <laughs> Dude, it, it sounds like he was your first life coach. I mean, that yeah. idea of like follow through, <laughs> discipline. Yeah. Do the work. Yeah. So let's let's fast forward to um, uh, like how did starting an ABA business even enter your consideration set? Oh man, I married up. I married a terrific woman, uh, Alicia Gilliam's my wife. She's a, a BCBA and she's got a, a couple of other alphabets after her name. She's I can't say enough. Not just because she's my wife, but she was a you know most people don't become a BCBA at 23. She was, um, and it wasn't like you know. Uh, hard for her. She graduated from college early. Got a got a master's early. Like she did her undergrad in like two and a half years. Like, like when that, when the rest of us were like still going and partying, she was like volunteering at the nine one one helpline just to figure out. Right, she knew at seventeen what she was gonna do. So like, the the, the point is she she wanted to start her own practice. She had been doing this stuff for a couple of years and wanted to start her own practice. And she didn't want to do anything dealing with like operations or dealing with insurance companies or Heck, she, she, she needed somebody to be her janitor and her secretary and everything else. And I was I was doing pretty cool in my career, but I knew that like, hey, being a business owner is like an entrepreneur, that's the goal, right? You wanna, you wanna um, you know, work for yourself and control your schedule and obviously make, make a little money and help people along the way. And my wife had a passion about it. I knew nothing about ABA at all. Like didn't know the first thing, but I knew if I could just like get out of her way and allow her to like be great, cause I thought she was amazing. Um, we could be successful. And uh, so in 2009, we, we took the leap, um, did, you know, got a, got a SBA small business loan and like, just like, we're going to open up a clinic and see what happens. It was me, her and one client. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, 13, you know, 15 months later, we, we had like 50 employees in two offices. It happened really fast, but one of the best experiences of my life. And you and Alicia had known each other since high school, is that right? Yeah, we're high school sweethearts, man. Uh, she can't get rid of me. <laughs> she's she's not gonna get rid of me. I've been I've been my, I always joke with our kids and I say I've been stalking your mom since we were sixteen. But yeah, we we've been together now uh, over twenty years and and married uh, almost fifteen years, going on fifteen years here, a couple months. And uh, yeah, we get, we got married young, and you know I I when I, I joke and I say I married up, man, I really married somebody who's a great teacher. Um, but you know, not just from an ABA standpoint, but with providers, but I also married somebody who's like the most understanding and grateful person that I've ever met. Like she, she knows how to see me at my worst and still see the best in me and bring me along the way. And so that really helped us earlier in our business as I grew and learned, right? Like, and I was able to like figure out how to work with insurance companies, how to partner with employees and just do all the things you need to do as a business owner. She, she provided me the latitude that I needed to like fail and fell forward and fell fast and not be ridiculed. Um, so when you have a business partner, when you just have a partner in life, right, you're going to see them not do things right. And are you going to ridicule them? Or are you going to like resent them? Or are you going to, you know, bring them along? And she brought me along, right, in the best way she could. And so we wouldn't have been as successful if she didn't have the demeanor she had, because I, I was the one making the mistakes because I was the one new, right? We never owned a business. We're young and she knows her part, but I don't know my part. So. It, it, I tip my hat to her and how she handled herself in those first couple of years because it really allowed us to grow and thrive and, and just help so many different families in the community. It's pretty common in the ABA field that husband and wife teams will start a business. 
And um, I, I mean, like it, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it, right? Because yeah. having a business partner is one thing. Having a life partner, a spouse is another yeah. like whole different thing. And you're bringing both of those together. So tell me if you could go back to Ryan of 2009, right as you all were launching, and you thought about the relationship you had with her as a business partner, what would you tell yourself back then? Clock out, don't bring work home. <laughs> don't bring work home. Like we, you know, we struggled in the beginning of separating the lines between like, you know, as business partners versus, you know, spouses. Like at home, my wife's submissive and she's like, hey, you're the head of the house, you're my husband kind of thing. We're from the South, so we kind of have those those dynamics from, from, from that standpoint. And, um, but at, at work, she was, we, you know, she was a CEO, I was a CEO. Like she was, obviously it's her field, her passion, like this is her deal, right? So it was like, how, how does this work? And we, it took us time to figure it out. It took us time to realize like, hey, like if you, you know, like you're really good here, you do this and the, you know, you're gonna take a little, right? And, 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 you know, how do you do that and not like be prideful when like, you know, things don't go your way or vice versa. And that, if I could go back, I would really like, really want myself to understand that, hey, look, you you cannot be your wife's, uh, uh, you know, husband at work, like in the middle of like a 10 o'clock meeting because your pride's hurt. Like you, that just doesn't work. Uh, it's just not gonna be productive. Um, and and I think, you know, we, we figured it out, but it took it took some time. It's, and that's easier said than done, right? I mean, what were the specific things that you and she, commitments say, or that you, you all agreed on, or things that you did to, to bring that that's to life, great, that separation? That's a great question. So tangibly, um, we had some ground rules, right? Um, we established some ground rules. For one of the first ground rules we established is we would stay in our own yard. So if once you think of this analogy for a second, when you drive down the street, you look at all these freshly manicured yards, you won't go in someone else's yard and like manicure their yard for them. They get to cut their own grass, trim their own edges, right? You get that? So like when someone is operating a certain part of the business, you don't go and tell them what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. So we call it stay in your yard. And um, you signed up to be their business partner. So you get, the, you get the, their successes and the failures that come along with being their partner. And you sign up for that. And that was like the one of the, the our main rules. It was like, hey, I am not gonna second guess you in front of everybody else. I, you have, I have a thousand percent have your back. And if there's something we disagree with, we talk about it offline, not in front of the team, um, or you know, obviously anyone like that. So that was the first rule that we really set up. That we still live to this day, like stay in your yard. Um, the the second one was, hey, you know, what happens at work does not have any reflection on our relationship. Now how you live that out is like you you have to understand like just because you know you know i disagree with you here doesn't mean i don't want to have dinner with you tonight <laughs> like 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 mm. healthy discourse is okay like 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 if i want to open a new office and you don't right that doesn't mean that i don't love you it doesn't mean that i don't care about you and i want to spend the rest of my life with it just means that i have a different viewpoint of this strategy of this business uh, venture or whatever the, the case may be and so like what we learned to do is something called work talks where we would separate all the other things and we had some 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 uh like kind of seven steps we would follow and then we would come to a situation where we would both have a win-win and we wouldn't have leave one person leaving the uh conversation where i feel like i was taking advantage of or i feel like i gave in so now you got this win i gotta win the next time 
we got rid of all that kind of stuff by having what we call work talks, which allowed us to really communicate, get on the same page, and make sure we didn't go forward with anything that the other person felt like they were losing. Because if she loses, I lose, and vice versa. So those are the two things. Stay in your own yard and having work talks, it really allowed us to grow and thrive and, and be great partners. Ryan, this is profound wisdom, especially for people in their 20s and 30s, right? Owning a business for the first time. Did you all, like, did you come up with this on your own? Or was it just the school of hard knocks? Did you have a coach separately, your psychologist or therapist who was working with you? No, we, you know, like everybody else, we, we, we you know, we had counseling and, and pastors, uh, not, you know, from a church standpoint or clinical standpoint, we all of the above, right? And we figured out over time, trial and error and a lot of mistakes. Like, like life, right? Um, what worked best for us. And there were things we tried along the way that would work for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and then it wouldn't work anymore. But those were the two things that like really stood to the test of time. Um, but I, I, I want to like just encourage everyone to like, like find people that you can glean from and learn from uh, that, that you respect and that have been there and done that. So we found folks in our community that, that had, you know, obviously couples that were married and business together that we could like, hey, Tell us what we're doing wrong. Like we're having these issues, right? You know, and not and not just in the ABA space because, you know, you know, folks that have other businesses can also give a lot of feedback. And then obviously we we're, we're, we have a strong faith in our in our family and in Christ. And so we 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 obviously went to our church and was like, hey, how do we how do we make sure that we don't grow a great business but have a really bad marriage, right? Like, what's the point, right? If you mm -hmm. you get you get financially and you really help some folks and some kiddos get some great services, but in the families are everybody's happy, but you're suffering in your marriage. Like that that's not the dream. So we 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 made a, a conscious effort to seek help um, and not just like push it to the side because what what most folks do and what we almost did is we just we're gonna have this great business but not have a great marriage, and we decided. No, we're we're gonna we're gonna put the same amount of work in our marriage that we're putting into this business, because it takes work, and um, you got to make those conscious efforts. And both people have to decide that the marriage is more important than the business, and the business isn't. Because if the business is more important, the marriage will suffer. But if the marriage is more important, you'll like each other enough to make the business better. You can't make a business better if you don't want to be with your partner. And so that's what we learned through counseling. That's what we learned through loving, and uh, that's really what helped us be successful. Ryan, how did you create an environment, not just in your business partnership relationship, but in your organization, where it was okay to fail? I lived it. I felt, so I, I mean this, like so many people like feel like they have to know everything, you know, uh, or like they, they have to be subject matter experts to be an entrepreneur. I'm sorry, I just don't have that train of thought. I have the train of thought like, hey, if you're willing to do the work, and you're willing to learn, you can grow and thrive and all these kind of things. So we had a we had an atmosphere, we had a community of, of folks who were all learning. And we were a young team, we're a young leadership team. So it was like, hey, I'm learning, you're learning, and it's okay to uh, make mistakes as long as you learn from them. And so we lived that out through like not hiding our mistakes from our team. Now there were some strong benefits to that because folks felt comfortable in the psychological environment so that they could learn and grow but there are some downsides to that too There's, it's not all rainbows folks felt like well you guys how, how do i know you guys really got this like you know how do i know we, we, we have a really strong business here because you know there's everything isn't everything isn't you know what it seems sometimes and so you have to balance those two things and if i could go back i would i would definitely not share as much with the the the, the kind of the core team as early as we did uh because we wanted everybody to feel so safe but 
you know, you, you, like everything in life, right? Nothing, everything in moderation, right? Nothing in over and abundance uh, is good for you. But yeah, that's what we did. We lived it out. We didn't hide stuff from them. And I think it really helped them. Now, to this day, you know, you know, years later, uh, I think we still have a great deal of respect in our community and from our team members from doing that, right? Uh, I think we, we have a great name for that. Uh, I also would tell you that some folks uh, know we know what we're talking about because we've lived it. Um, you live failures, you learn from failures. And I think that was one of the best things I took away from it. What was the biggest failure you had in the business and what did you learn from it? Woo, where do you want to start? <laughs> um, the biggest one I, that I had was payer mixes, right? So essentially payer mixes is where you look at your, your, you know, your private, you know, we, we all know private pay and ABA isn't that big, but right, your private pay versus your insurance. Uh, Medicaid versus private insurance and I didn't take enough time to care early enough about hey not getting too top-heavy in one payer versus another I let our Medicaid get too high like I let our Medicaid you know become too 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 big of a percentage of our revenue and um, and what happened was they cut the Medicaid rates right so now we've built a business around growth we built a business around clinical quality that requires a certain amount of revenue and cash flow and now that it's it's been impacted like that because i didn't set up the right parameters around pair mixes and it's like at the time I was like i didn't even know what a pair mix was <laughs> you know what i mean so that's the kind of things like you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it and you can go to school and you can get all the degrees you want i've been blessed to have an mba and all that but but until you live it sometimes you don't really know um and that was one of the biggest mistakes I think that 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 kept us from like really going to the next level at the time we wanted to go to. We recovered from it and all was fine as well. But the point is, you got to know and structure those things the same way you do your budget, right? You got to put parameters in place. So if Tricare decides to do something, change a rule on you and not allow you like we did re they did recently to provide services in schools, you're not you're not you know out there you know with your your hand in the wind right you're, you you've got some false saves or not false saves you got some ability to pivot and uh that's one of the biggest things i learned was or i'm sorry one of the biggest failures was not having pivot uh <laughs> payer mixes set up so uh, that's powerful advice and one of your responsibilities was overseeing revenue cycle management right? Billing and authorizations and scheduling. Um, and I know you experienced great successes and maybe some failures there too. Tell mm -hmm. me more about what um, you know, your role overseeing revenue cycle and billing. So, you know, my wife saw everything clinically and I had everything else. So anything in the clinical world, obviously she took care of and I took care of everything else. So from a revenue cycle standpoint, it was my baby. And there were different times over the eight years where I would outsource to a vendor and not be happy with what they did, right? Um, and then bring it in-house. But when you bring something in-house, you've got to own it, right? You, you got, if, if, even if you're hiring people, you got to know how to do it yourself. So I took the approach as like, I would, be, I would be our biller. I would do authorizations. I would do the benefit checks. I would do it until I knew it inside and out. And then I not just could train someone, but I could know if somebody was taking too long to do something or I can know if somebody wasn't doing it to the level of the standard they should do it. And it's easy for me because it's how I paid my mortgage, right? I was motivated uh, to, to be great at it, right? It's how I made sure I had a roof over my head. Um, 
So that was that was kind of my stance, right? And so like when a vendor would tell me, oh, that's just this, I'd be like, no, actually it's not. You know, so that was the biggest part for me, getting there, getting my hands dirty and living it and doing it. So for three years, I did all the billing uh, myself. Um, and that was a, a process that was crazy because, you know, at the time, obviously we, you know, from a national standpoint, you know, insurance, ABA billing was still new. Um, we're still figuring it out. Um, so it was every different provider having a different provider manual with different rules. It was it was interesting, but it was it was something. I, what, you have I, your I, hand I, here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a, as a business owner, you had a hand on one of the key levers, right? I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. kind of unsexy work, and at the same mm -hmm. time, like you need to see cash in your bank account in order to make your next payroll. Mm -hmm. What did you yeah. learn that that you yeah. would want every other ABA provider to know? B b bill often, like don't bill once a week. Like I know it. Like that's like what we all go to, right? Like some folks are, you know, two weeks. Most folks bill every week, but try to bill every two days. Um, it's it, it it's, it's just health. The health of your revenue cycle will just improve dramatically. It's not easy to get the providers. It's not easy to get the team, from a back office standpoint, on that. But once you do it, once you cross that hurdle, it will make your life so much better, um, because all the problems in the lags that you typically see, they're all shortened because you're billing quicker, right? Cash flow increases because you have more money coming in on a consistent pace. So one of the first things, uh, especially as a smaller organization, as you before you get bigger, try to get on that pace, all right, right, of billing every every two days. Once you're a bigger organization, once you have over 100 clients, once you, you know, we, we all know in multiple states, it's harder to kind of, you know, we all know like how our federal government is, right? You, it's hard to move a big boat, right? You gotta, you have a lot more moving pieces and a lot of people, but when you're smaller, like go ahead and, and do the work to get where well, you can bill every every two days or multiple times a week and it'll it'll truly make it. I know it helped me sleep better at night. I'll, I believe I'll do the same thing for you. <laughs> and I know, so you had it in-house, uh, the billing function in-house for three years, um, but then you also work with outside vendors. What mm -hmm. advice would you give to ABA providers when evaluating uh, a potential vendor? Where do I begin? Oh, where cycles? do I begin? Where do I begin? Okay, so it's, okay, so we had horror stories. We have been to steal from us. I mean, I hate to, I, I, to bring that up, but it's like the reality. Um, don't ever let a vendor tell you the money should come to them and then they'll give you a check. Um, like in 2010, a company called Wellspring did that and Wellspring stole from a lot of providers. Um, they didn't, you know, they, 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 they were an ABA provider in California. They had their own issues going on with their California Medicaid and it hurt providers throughout the country. But this, this, these things happen. So that's the first thing, right? Don't let the money go to them and then, you know, come back to you. Uh, second thing I would say is understand how their teams are set up. So they're telling you that you're going to get more than you pay for. All right, who works for you? What is their experience? And not only what is their experience, but will we have access to them? Because if, if, if they have one person doing it for them and that person leaves, they're you're in a worse spot than you started because now your team isn't ready to take it on, right? And then they don't have anyone in, on their side that it can actually fill in if that person leaves. So the staffing concerns you have about your organization, you should have those same concerns about any vendor you partner with. And the third thing that I would say is like really important to understand and ask, not just on the interview process, but as you work with them, is their methodology about how they do what they do. Like, what is the method of the madness? Like. Like, why do they approach things the way they approach them? 
and we all know when we talk to a mechanic or we talk to anybody else who's a professional, we know BS when we hear it, right? <laughs> you know if somebody's like, oh, we do this and we do that. It's like, you're not saying anything. If they sound like the politician who's not really giving you any substance, it might be that they're not subject matter expert in ABA. ABA billing is different than speech. It's different than OT. It's different than PT. It's different than like uh, social work, you know, uh, family health uh, counseling. So if if they are not ABA billers, um, they might not be the best company for you. Just those are my three things. Yeah. Ryan, how did you decide to sell your business? It was my wife's decision. Um, we we had a string of things that, uh, and we obviously we partnered on the choice, right? We didn't. I didn't just like, but she, when I say it was her baby, like you know, this is her career and so forth and so on. We started the, we started the practice. We didn't have any children. After eight years, we had three children. The amount of time and energy, you know, to take three young children. We had three kids under the age of like, I think, four at the time or five. You know, so it was, you know, it's a lot. Um, and what happened was we had a hurricane in 2017, and at that time we had we had done well, and we had several commercial properties as well as you know the ABA business, and we were doing other things, had other businesses going, and our commercial properties just got devastated um, with Hurricane Hurricane Irma, 2017, and so we had all, all our ACs were like underneath the some you know the our suites, and they all got flooded, and so we had like. 70 plus kids at this office like without ACs for two weeks in Florida in Florida so as you can imagine that didn't go well um and um we we looked at it and like man this is this is really tough and then uh, we got kids now and like how how do we still show up as our best self and make sure kids are getting the the clinical quality they need right? and making sure like our marriage is important to us like how do we how do we do all this and we looked around and we had been in offers for a couple of years and we didn't really like those offers but we we had some revenue sharing set up with some other folks in town that were doing it the right way and folks we really believed in and and they they said hey are you guys open to having a conversation and my wife was like yes i am very open <laughs> to having a conversation after eight years like I not still believe in the purpose, but it just we're, we're a little tired, just to be honest. And uh, and so um, that it was more about um, maintaining the quality of life we wanted. And at that point, like it was, you know, we 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 we, we were spread a little thin. Um, and so we, we we sought we sought refuge in in acquisition. But but uh, it's not for everybody. That that process alone was long and hard and tedious but uh, it was something that worked out for us. What's one piece of advice you would give to ABA organizations who are thinking about selling? This should be an entire podcast series. Like this topic right here, <laughs> like uh, there's so much. Um, I would say, first of all, before you get to like any like disclosures, like know who you're working with, like, uh, you know, Everybody's going to tell you, they're going to all say the right things. They're all going to say that they have the capital. They're going to all say they, they care about your purpose and the kiddos. But what's really important is how, where they see you after the acquisition is over. Do they expect you to become an employee? Are you going to fade out of the business? Are you going to be an employee, uh, only like an employee, or uh, independent contractor um, under an agreement? Like where, what, it, what do they envision? Not what you want, but what do they envision? What does success look like for them? 
right? If they, they if they expect your team to take over and grow 15 offices in the next three years, that's important. That's something you want to know in the beginning. Uh, if, if if they're if they're if what success looks like for them is based upon, you know, a metric or a measure that is not important to you. Find out before you like open up the hood and show them everything because you might do all that and then find out it's not it's not a good fit. We actually had that. We um, the first uh, organization that we were gonna uh, sell to, we found out at the end like this is not this is these this is not a situation that we would feel comfortable with long term, and uh, wasted several months in conversations like in due diligence and auditors and all this kind of stuff before that point. So I would say upfront find out who they are and what they want not like oh we want to buy you but like okay at month six what would you be doing you know two years down the road like how would your kiddos are like for example we we saw kiddos all the way up to 18 right if somebody wants to come in and they only they only want to stop at six years old and do early early intervention right like so hey what does that mean for your other kiddos are they gonna have to find new providers those are the kind of questions like we all think about the money part of it but think about the people. Like, are your, your employees going to be able to maintain their the, the, the health benefits that you you're accustomed to? PTO, culture, those kind of things. Um, the rest of the stuff can take care of itself. But I would think to focus on who they are, what they want, and uh, let the conversations go from there. I love it. So get to know them. Mm-hmm. Get to know what su- success looks like for them, not mm-hmm. just for you. Uh, and think about it from your your people's perspective. That's powerful. Ryan, tell me about the moment you handed the keys over. What emotions were you experiencing? I was a wreck because I didn't want to let go. Um, I didn't. I didn't want to let go. I mean, you put your heart and blood in something, and you know, will you do it the right way? Like, can I really trust you? Because um, we we truly um, were, were able to have every a hundred percent employees stay. Nobody left. Literally, it was like ninety eight percent of the clients stayed. So, um, because I believe we built something that was pretty cool, right? We had a right, the right culture. And, um, you know, I felt we had this dinner, this celebratory dinner, and everybody's there, and we're at the restaurant, you know, the whole deal, right? And I don't know if I'm supposed to be crying or laughing. <laughs> you know, just um, me and my wife are like, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, you know, think about this, man. We go to high school for four years and think about the memories you have. You go to college. You think about the memories you have in college for those four, those four and eight years of your life. So that's a, that's the period we spend at PBS. You know how many families we interacted with? We go to the grocery store. We see them, right? And they're like, "Hey, what's up, guys? Like, did you guys just? Well, why are you guys doing this? You know that kind of thing. You know, we go to we go to the local high school football game to see our cousins play or stuff like that, and we see our coworkers and you know folks we hired along the way. So it's one of those things to where it's bittersweet, but it was the right thing for us. It was the right decision for us at the time, and I would I would still make the same choice, but that doesn't mean I felt good about it when I did it. It was, you know, it's your baby, and you want to you want to stay with it. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. I want to close out with uh, a section of just quick rapid fire questions for you. Uh, so you ready? I think so. Okay. I, <laughs> sorry, yeah, not to tee it up like this is some huge thing. Uh, just quick, what comes to mind and share? Who's your biggest influence and why? Jesus, um, you know, you know, try to base my life around how, you know, the, the cliche, right? What would Jesus do? So definitely Jesus. 
If you could have dinner with one person in history, who would it be? In history? Ooh, because I was going to say my wife. Anyone. I was, I, I, typically, I'll, I'll pick her because I married her, right? But if I had to take it outside of her, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with a president. Uh, I would take Barack Obama. Um, I would really like to know, you know, some of his thoughts, not just like on politics, but just in life. So I think it would be pretty cool to have dinner with Barack Obama. Mm. What's your favorite book? The Bible. Like, I know that's like cliche because I said Jesus already, but I, I'll say the Bible. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it fits every situation, um, even the ones you don't like. So I will go with the Bible and a rapid fire. <laughs> Ed, if you could travel to any place around the world tomorrow, where would it be? Ooh, rapid fire? I'm going to say Thailand. And it's only because... Like, I really like Hangover 2, and I just like, like, I just like, I know it's a random movie, but if we're talking random stuff, Thailand, I've never been to Thailand, I don't know many people that have been to Thailand, but it's a very interesting place, so, and, you know, I need another stamp in my passport, so I think I need to book a, a trip to Thailand now, Jonathan, <laughs> um, but Thailand will be good. Hey, Ryan, thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun. I've really enjoyed uh, our conversation. Congratulations on all the success that you've experienced. Um, and I look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks for having me. I really, uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Building Better Businesses in ABA podcast. Stay tuned for our next exciting episode. In the meantime, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We value your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on social media at elementrcm.ai.